So I think of this idea as being this internalized sense that you have to sacrifice your well-being for the success of the company, of the initiative, of your business, of your family. It's about putting your basic needs on the back burner for the sake of your career, for whatever it is that you're striving towards. This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen. We help you define the work that's unapologetically you, and then go get it. If you're ready to make a change, keep listening. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Hey, welcome back to the Happen to Your Career podcast. I am absolutely ecstatic because today we get to bring on a guest that I've had on before. And uh, it was not only super fun last time I got to chat with her, but it was also one of our, if I remember correctly, top 20 episodes out of any of the episodes that we had produced. So you have absolutely loved her and we've got her back because we get to talk about a completely different topic today. We get to talk about martyrdom and martyrdom mindset. And what is what is the difference between being strategic, being a martyr, and everything else in between here? And I want to welcome back to Happen to Your Career, Emily Aries. How are you? I'm so good, Scott. Thanks so much for having me back. Absolutely. So I mentioned before, you know, we had you on. We we got to talk about burnout last time around. Right. That was a really popular episode because I think so many people have identified with burnout in mm-hmm. particular in one way or another. And you were such a gem in how you told the stories around it. And so many people were able to connect with that and get something incredibly useful. And I am particularly excited because I know that we're going to be able to do the same thing today, but around a completely different topic. How does that sound? That sounds great. Although I would argue that the martyrdom mindset and burnout have a lot in common. They're kind of linked in some ways, aren't they? (laughs) Definitely. For sure. I have an idea of what you mean by that, but help me understand what uh, what do you actually mean when you say that? Well, it's wild in thinking about where the burnout conversation has gone in the past few years, because just last week, the Washington Post published an article and the title was Burnout is Everywhere. (laughs) And so even though you and I talked about burnout years ago now, and my bout of burnout personally struck when I was 24 and really just starting off in my career and trying to figure out how to sustain my ambition the burnout conversation isn't going away because we haven't solved the problem yet. So for me, when I looked at the underlying science and history, the sort of historical context of how did we get here? And frankly, how the hell do we get out of here in terms of striving for a more sustainable work-life balance for everyone? Yeah, The martyrdom mindset is a term that I use to describe a smorgasbord of historical and scientific ways in which we've set ourselves up to burn out. So I think of this idea as being this internalized sense that you have to sacrifice your well-being for the success of the company, of the initiative, of your business, of your family. It's about putting your basic needs on the back burner for the sake of your career, for whatever it is that you're striving towards. And I think far too many of us, especially in the age of information and disruption and when we're competing with our computer counterparts who can, unlike humans, simultaneously run many different programs at once without 
those programs suffering, you know, in trying to compete with computers, we have forgotten that our basic human needs need to be on the front burner, not on the back burner. I actually spoke at a conference at Capital One all about AI, preparing your career in the age of artificial intelligence. Yes. And it was about future-proofing your career. And we talked about, you know, some of the things you can learn from technology and design and iterative processes and all that jazz. But, you know, disruption is happening. It is coming. So we have to know that what makes us human is important and is actually a strength, not something to be ignored. It is. And I I hadn't thought about it in that particular exact way. So that's really interesting that you bring that up. And when you say that it's a strength and not something Mm -hmm. to be ignored, what would be an example of that where you've seen that in action that might be overlooked normally? Well, let's just talk about sleep, for example. Computers don't need sleep. People very much do. But when we chronically ignore our basic human need for about seven to eight hours of sleep a night, which I think most working professionals laugh at (laughs) in chronicling (laughs) their own, even their own relationship with sleep. I was the kind of person who, especially in my 20s, used to say, I'll sleep when I'm dead. You know, I got better things to do. Yeah. You know, I used to look at sleep as the enemy, like it was something to be avoided. And when we continuously are underslept and continuously martyr ourselves for the sake of whatever else or make that conscious choice to not get the sleep we need physiologically, we operate like drunk people, right? Our basic cognitive functioning is inhibited akin to someone who's been drinking on the job. (laughs) So if we want to be creative, if we want to be efficient, if we want to be really innovative, and if the quality of your brain power, not just the amount of hours you're, you're putting it to good use, matters to you, taking care of our basic human needs for sleep on a regular basis matters. So it's a way of looking at burnout as something we have historically arrived at in part because of our Puritan founders of these United States of America who literally looked at leisure as an evil thing. That's where the phrase idle hands are the devil's workshop really stems from that line of thinking. And when we believe that our self-worth, as the Protestant work ethic would posit, when we believe our self-worth is measured by our personal productivity, we've accelerated that belief to the point where now we feel guilty for not working all the time. I don't like that. I've experienced that many <laughs> different times along the way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know yeah. how more simply to put it than I <laughs> I am aware of that. Yeah. I have yeah. been the <laughs> whatever the opposite of benefactor of that is. Yeah. And I don't like it. And the trap I keep falling into is that I during my early 20s trained myself so well Mm-hmm. to do that thing that I still, to this day, have to really stop myself from falling back into that. It's such an ingrained routine. Yeah. It's like this weird clinging that we do to this meritocracy, the belief the harder we work, yeah. the more we'll be rewarded. We all really want to believe that. And you know, I won't debate how true that is in our economy right now because that's a much longer, wonkier conversation. <laughs> we, you know, the, the, when we have the seven-hour conversation yeah. later, the-, the debate really is like: is the American dream feasible for everyone? And if you look at systemic injustice and oppression and unconscious bias, 
you know, that's a TBD kind of question. But we try to cling to this idea that if I just muscle through, if I just push through, if I keep my nose to the grindstone, if I work harder and faster and better than my competitors, I will be rewarded by our capitalist economy or by my loved one who will tell me they love me because I work so hard. It also makes me think a lot of gender roles. The martyrdom mindset isn't just about the Protestant work ethic. It's what happens when it merges with traditional gender stereotypes, of which are changing, mercifully. Mercifully, yes. (laughs) And long overdue fashion. But, you know, women have been long taught that what makes a nice girl or a nice lady is to be generous and kind and sweet and caring, especially caring, right? Those caretaker roles that were so associated with femininity. Yeah. And so when you're a working mom or when you're just a girlfriend or you're a woman who's trying to be nice, it is very easy to fall into that slippery slope of always putting other people's needs before your own. And it can lead us to feeling not only burnt out, not only acting like a martyr, but on the long term, it it bites us in the butt, right? It's not the most strategic way to sustain your ambition and you're going to end up feeling resentful. That's interesting on the you know, I heard you say just a girlfriend or just a, I recently mm. went and spoke at a, it was an all women's conference and I was, they had me, they brought me in as what they called an ally for. Oh gosh. Yeah. And it was an amazing conference to be at in the first place, but it was also a really interesting perspective because I was the only guy there. So I sure. hung around for part of it and, you know, participated in some of the discussions and what was obvious to me, but also I hadn't given a lot of thought about until you know we were talking about it in, in a breakout discussion someplace mm. was that word just that gets applied and mm-hmm. it gets applied with so many different women, not the same way at all as yeah. it gets applied in a male format. And it's right. really unfortunate because that small words like that can have big implications. Yeah, I appreciate you calling me in on that too because I should be more cautious in how I describe the roles that women play to different folks. We don't have less of an identity because we don't have children or because we don't we aren't married. So I can see how that could be misconstrued in a way that's not super productive. But it is interesting to think about how your identity intersects, yeah. right? Yeah. And how you see yourself as a caretaker. We don't talk about working dads. No, not we, really Have at you all. ever heard that? Like, yeah. <laughs> working mothers is a thing, but working fathers isn't even a term we use. It's not even so, something that would get, uh, unfortunately, sadly, yeah. it's not even something that would like get clicks on Twitter or something it along is those sad. lines. Why, why is that? That's ridiculous, actually, well, now that I say that out loud. Right? Well, it's the yeah. history of who we assume does the labor at home. And so when I wrote my book all about overcoming the martyrdom mindset, It was a pretty personal journey of reevaluating my personal history, my mother's gender performance in our family, how she took care of us. She's also a professional caretaker, a nurse. And so looking at the caring economy or looking at historically associated, you know, feminine gender stereotypes, and then comparing that to the historical context of our country and thinking, okay, what do I do with that information? What do I personally do? to live a happy, healthy, and sustainable life, to pursue the career I want to pursue, and to not burn out halfway there. (laughs) Like, how do I, as a woman in today's working world, 
be assertive about defining the role that I want to play for myself and keeping burnout at bay by seeing self-care as an essential career strategy for the 21st century. So what do you think then from your perspective? I know we've talked about it a little bit so far, but I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. What do you Mm -hmm. think are some of the biggest causes other than the expectations within society for martyrdom? Like, How are we continuing to contribute to that and reinforcing that? I always talk about how our choices shape our culture. And I think there's a very robust debate in the feminist dialogue writ large that basically positions the Sheryl Sandbergs of the world against the Anne-Marie Slaughters of the world. So if your listeners haven't read some of Anne-Marie Slaughter's books, including Unfinished Business or Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In, there is this raging debate, right? Sheryl Sandberg would say, don't do yourself a disservice by taking your foot off the gas pedal in your career, ladies. Lean in, keep trying, don't leave work or your career track until you absolutely have to. And Anne-Marie Slaughter would say, well, let's look at the economy and at our government's policies that make it impossible for women to have equal opportunity. For instance, we have no federal affordable childcare policy in place. We are the only developed nation in the world that has no parental leave policy on the federal level established to make it possible for human beings to have another human being without it dramatically impacting women's careers in a way that it does not dramatically hinder men's careers moving forward. So there's this huge debate of is it the system or is it the individual choice? that women are making. And I always say they're one in the same. <laughs> the individual choices we make create a collective culture of expectations of who's doing the house care, who's doing the child care, who's pursuing careers in engineering and science and technology, and who's not. So we have to advocate for systemic change. We have to advocate for the basic leveling of the playing field policies that we need for women and men to both have opportunity. But we also need to make those conscious choices in our own relationships, in our own households, in our own careers that create the world we want to see and we want to be a part of. So it's this two-part process. It's not an either-or solution because the answer to your very tough question is that the causes are both systemic and personal. So what I hear you saying is that we can influence the systemic Correct. by making choices on a personal basis day mm-hmm. after day. Yeah. It's in your office, right? Those microaggressions or those micro moments of amplification to make your voice heard and advocate for getting that best assignment and you know, advocate for being considered for the job that requires a ton of travel. Even if you do have a child at home, I don't want to be not considered for this position, right? It's those little advocacy moments in your career. And it's the conversations you have with your family. It's the conversations we have about how we run our households. And, you know, not everyone is married or wants to be married or will be married. But I recently jumped into the institution myself less than a year ago uh, as a skeptic. Yeah. (laughs) As a bit of a skeptic of the entire institution, I'm, I'm now a member. But, uh, you know, Brad, the boo, my husband, he and I are always negotiating 
and we're negotiating. We don't have kids, but, you know, who's doing the grocery shopping? Who's doing the cooking? And I personally love cooking, but I don't love grocery shopping. So we've been experimenting and iterating and constantly evolving our way to making sure we both feel like we have what we need to be sustainable personally and professionally. And that will constantly change. It will constantly be in flux. But it's very different than my mom who, you know, is a second wave feminist herself, but would say things like, oh, you got to let the man take the trash out. That's, you know, that's a man's job. (laughs) And I'm like, whoa, where is that even coming from? You know, the idea that certain roles are dictated by gender is something we have to push back on at work and in our personal lives in big and small ways every single day. (laughs) I'm... trying to get my mind off how that, how that became the the man's job in the first place with it. I don't even, I'm just I don't I'm, get I'm, it. I'm fascinated by how some things evolve in that particular yeah. way. And I mean what's interesting is if you look at housework alone in households that have full-time working women living with full-time working men the good news is men are doing more around the house than ever before. Yay. But the interesting part is that women are still doing twice the amount of childcare and housework in terms of hours put in. And so, you know, to go back to your question, well, how did, how did this happen? There's two reasons for that. One, maybe women have higher standard of cleanliness that we should chill a little bit on. And maybe men need to pony up and do their fair share. So it's hard to look at it as like a a simple, causal, reactionary relationship because it is fraught, but it requires constant negotiation and advocacy for everyone to feel like we have our needs met. Here's what I'm interested in. To jump back for just a moment then to the martyrdom mindset. Let's call it that for a moment. Sure. What do you believe, aside from taking those little interactions every single day and taking advantage of those and pushing forward on those and having the courage to act on those, aside from that, what do you believe are some of the biggest ways that we can overcome the the martyrdom mindset? So for individuals, you know, I set out in my new book to essentially say, here's the problem. Every single chapter is a solution. (laughs) So while we are waiting for Congress and for our government to to level the playing field, there are some pretty clear things we can do as individuals. So first is we have to cultivate what I call a boss identity. The martyrdom mindset tells us that this is just the way things are. You have to hustle hard. You have to put your nose to the grindstone. You have to sacrifice your well-being in order to perform. And cultivating a boss identity is kind of the antithesis of accepting that status quo as unchangeable. And it's like pushing back on the burnout conversation, which burnout often strikes when you have no agency in your life. You don't see yourself as in the the driver's seat of your life or your career or your day-to-day interactions. So cultivating a boss identity is about seeing yourself as in charge, even when it doesn't necessarily feel that way. And even when you're not an actual boss of anybody, it's about seeing yourself as someone who can push back on things, who can experiment with finding a more sustainable path forward. So I'll give you an example. I used to, when I was in my early 20s, think, I can't take a lunch break. I have no time. I have to get my things done. This to-do list is never ending. Who has time? 
to walk away from their desk and have a lunch that's not a sad desk salad. (laughs) And I've talked to many young professionals who really feel like, I can't, there's no time. And that I can't voice detracts from our ability to say, okay, well, I'm going to steer the ship of my day today. I'm going to take charge of my day. Where can I build in time for rest and renewal that's intermixed into focused intervals of, of work and attention? Now, I didn't think it was important that I was skipping my lunch break pretty much every day for three years early on in my career until I burnt out completely. (laughs) And so, you know, not everyone's job makes it possible, despite the fact that we should, in fact, have a right to labor laws that say we need breaks and that we as human beings deserve them. It's easier in some workplaces than others, but we have to advocate and see ourselves as in charge for iterating our way and experimenting our way to more sustainability. So really starting to see yourself as the boss of your day-to-day life, of your career, and and putting yourself in a leadership position. What would you recommend that we do to to actually do that? Because I understand what you're saying, and the concept makes sense to me, and I'm sure that everyone listening can identify with the concept. Yeah. However, applying it in reality can be potentially a totally different thing. So what what advice would you have to be able to implement that, even if yeah. it's just small pieces at a time? So the first step to really cultivating this sense of, of a boss identity is to act in a way you haven't acted before. So let's say you are an intern, a lowly intern as I was uh, at a digital strategy agency in Washington, D.C. that had just finished helping elect Barack Obama using online technology. And back in the day, I saw a need, but nobody was doing anything about it. I was encouraged to just sort of sit there, write my blog post of the day and, you know, not make a fuss because I was just an intern and I didn't want to annoy anybody with my eager beaver, you know, idea, ideas Your that I had to ideas. Offer. Yeah. So the first step to seeing myself as in control of the situation or taking charge of the situation, as opposed to just tacitly accepting that I should just sit there and twiddle my thumbs, I sent out an email to the fellow interns. There were about five of us. And I said, hey, I have this idea of how we can do this better. I'd love to chat with you all about it. Let's get together over our lunch break. Would you meet me at 1230? And that is a leadership move, a boss move, right? First step to cultivating a boss identity is to take leadership action. Now, the second part, however, is a little less in your control because the second part is to gauge reaction. There were two basic outcomes that could have resulted from my boss move of inviting the rest of the interns to a conversation. They could show up and validate my identity that was starting to form as a boss identity, or they could not show up and say, who the hell do you think you are? Uh, No, thanks. I'm fine. Just dandy with how the way things are. And in that case, you know, you can either crumble. Your fledgling boss identity has the risk of just falling apart and you feeling defeated and saying, well, I guess I'm just not cut out for this. No one will ever listen to me. I'm going to be a doormat here. I'm feeling walked all over. Or you can start the cycle over again and say, how do I need to adjust my approach to have a better outcome? Because none of us can actually form a leadership identity in isolation. We need other people to reflect back to us 
the aspiring leader that we hope to be someday. We need that validation. And it only comes when you start to take leadership action. That's the funny phenomenon or juxtaposition, or there's probably a bunch of words that would fit in there, <laughs> is that anything, any any good feelings, any validation, right. any anything that is desirable only comes after the fact you've taken action. And that's mm -hmm. a that's a hard thing to practice. I really appreciate you pointing that out in the first place. And I, I'm really curious, how, how do you, you know, knowing all this stuff later, how do you practice this in, in your own life? Like, where does mm. it crop up for you now? Like, I, I mean, to be blatantly uh, transparent and honest, like we've got, a, we've had a huge project, bigger project than we've ever attacked as a team. And this morning I woke up and like things were just crumbling for all intents. That's how it felt. <laughs> yeah. Not not in reality, but that's how it sure. felt at the time. So I had to uh. like change a meeting and like get the, you know, we were trying to figure out how to get our kids to school and some other stuff was going on. And I had to like step out in order to do the things that made me feel like I was mm. in control that worked for me and take those actions so that mm -hmm. then I would get that validation. Um, and, and I know that now, but I'm curious, like, where does that crop up for you and how do you address it? How do you take action to uh, take back those feelings of control and have that, that boss mentality? Totally. So I am so glad you shared that vulnerable experience that you just did because we really never can say we're finished cultivating our own boss identity. It's not something you turn on or off. It's not a, a guarantee that you'll never feel insecure or like you're taking risks along the way because that first step of cultivating your boss identity, that that taking leadership action is inherently riddled with risk. So I try to navigate this in my own daily life with a lot of self-compassion. I try to focus on taking stock of my progress and not becoming beholden to perfection or feeling like perfection is the only standard through which I will judge myself. And one of the ways that I can do that is not just with self-compassion and a sense of establishing resilience and grit in the face of hardship, but also in reaching out and asking for help and, and knowing that asking for help is not a sign of weakness. It's actually the same thing as making progress. And I, I, I talk about this as cultivating a community of courage. I need people around me, not who are going to say, yes, you're doing the right thing all the time. But I need the people around me who are, who are going to say to me, hey, I don't know how this is going to go, but you can do this. You've figured out harder things in the past. It might not be going your way right now, but you can get back up and brush your shoulders off and give it another go. And I believe in you. And having people who believe in you, even in those moments when you don't believe in yourself, is part of that, uh, what I call mirror theory, this idea that you need people to reflect back to you the fiercest version of who you could be, even when you don't see it so clearly yourself. So where have you in the last maybe month or so had to reach out for reach out for help or, <laughs> yeah. or do exactly I'm I'm so curious. I'm putting you on the spot a little bit intentionally, but I would I'd love to know what that looks like for you these days. I'm glad you pushed me on it because so the last few months I have been very excited to be organizing my first ever book tour in celebration of my new book, Bossed Up, A Grown Woman's Guide to Getting Your 
project together. Uh, it debuts on May 21st, and I'll be going on a 10-city tour, which is all my doing, right? This is like my self-inflicted expectation. Yes. And even my publishers were like, you know, you don't need to do it all in the first three weeks. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, this is what I had in mind. This is what we're going to do. This is how it's going to be. And as I've called everyone I've ever worked with over the past six years since starting Bossed Up, I have been getting a lot of, oh, oh, you're just calling me because you've got this book that you now want me to sell. And, you know, I was happy to work with you when you were doing something for us. But, uh, you know, now that you're not offering me something as explicit and you're asking something of us to help, you know, host an event or put together an, you know, an experience about your book, I'm getting a lot of slammed doors in my face, or at least virtually. (laughs) And it made me really have to draw upon my experience as a grassroots organizer. Way back at the start of my career, I literally did go door knocking for healthcare and for presidential elections. And I remember that feeling of just straight up rejection, you know, like, no, I don't want to talk to you about this. (laughs) And how the hell do you recover from something like that? You know, it, it forces me to remember two things. One, my work is not my worth. It's a direct rejection of the Protestant work ethic that would say, my moral value is determined by my productivity in this world and what I create and what I contribute. And I have to remind myself that who I am as a human being, the fact that I deserve love and belonging and my basic needs met have nothing to do with Bossed Up or with my book or with my company or with all the cool stuff I get to do every day, like host a podcast or talk to cool people like you, Scott. You know, that has nothing to do with my basic value as a human being. So I have to remind myself of that sometimes with a mantra. One of my favorites is, and I actually got this, this sort of appeared in my life right when I started my company and I've held on to it ever since. It says, I deserve to serve and be served. I deserve to serve and be served. And so just reminding myself that I'm not my work is a healthy place to start. And then the second is call someone who loves me. (laughs) Call someone who maybe they don't even follow what I'm up to on a day-to-day basis with my work. Not a person who really defines me by this book, but my best friend from childhood who calls me on my still, you know, who tells me when my ego's getting in the way and says, it just reminds me of what I've done and what I can do again. And it's not going to work all the time. And that is normal. And those people keep you mentally grounded. And they're so important to have in my life. That's amazing. I, I do appreciate you, one, let me, letting me put you on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then two, sharing a bit about how that impacts you and how you put yourself in that in that situation or put yourself in that place to where then it becomes a yeah. <laughs> a doable thing again. It's weird though, right? Cuz at every level when you're like, "Oh damn, I'm about to do something I've never done before." You know, I'm about to go next level with this ish. Those are the moments where you're on your growth edge, where the magic could happen and Along the way to some really cool yeses that I've been getting, you're going to get a bunch of no's. Oh, yeah. And it's like, that is the direction we have to keep charging into. And sometimes I actually notice myself spinning my wheels, you know, getting an analysis paralysis because I'm afraid 
of getting a no or a yes. Anybody who's ever drafted an email and then hasn't sent it for two weeks knows what I'm talking about. (laughs) You're like, can I really be this fierce? Can I dare to ask someone I admire so much to do this cool thing with me? And it's like, we have to be willing to get those no's to stay in it for the yeses. I was talking to my kids a couple of days ago. So, you know, I mentioned the the same project that uh, that yeah. was going on this morning, but it's been something we've been working on for a while. And it's absolutely something we believe wholeheartedly in here at our company and it is well worth doing. And anytime we're trying to stay on our growth edge like that, it, just like what you said happens, you get... You get yeses, but you also get many more no's or you get Mm -hmm. ups and downs. You ride the roller coaster in a variety of different ways. And so um, I was driving my kids to Taekwondo. They're, you know, in Taekwondo tournaments, all kinds of stuff like that. And they're like, Dad, how was your day? It's like, you know what? It was it was a crazy, it was up and down and all over the place. It was really great. And it was really nutty all in the same day. And so somehow we started talking about Winston Churchill because we had, (laughs) yes, of course. Because your kids are awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we took them to, uh, to, uh, the UK for a month last year. And so we, you know, they got to learn about Winston Churchill. So one of my favorite quotes that I've heard, which just happens to be Winston Churchill is, he described yeah, success is the ability to go from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. Mm, <laughs> and I although that. I don't know if that is entirely perpetually true, because sometimes my enthusiasm yeah. goes up and down or goes down before it goes back up. Yeah. I really think it embodies the spirit of what you're talking about here. Hopefully with a with a win along the way. Every oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's it's all about resilience and it's so much easier to talk about resilience on a podcast than to practice it. But there's another quote that comes to mind from a very different person, but who speaks to the same thing. And that's Tracy Ellis Ross, the actress. Mm -hmm. She said, I am trying every day to allow the space between where I am and where I want to be to inspire me and not terrify me. Because, you know, we can be our own worst enemies psychologically in that space, the iterative process that we have to navigate to get to where we want to go. But I, I'm trying to m- make this idea and really argue for the sake of this idea that self-care and ambition can peacefully coexist, that we can be grateful for what we have and content with where we are and have ambition, have goals, want to get somewhere new. And that to me is like the joyful the joyful endeavor that is getting bossed up. It's about looking all the scary fears you have about where you want to go and all the systemic injustice that you might encounter along the way, right? It's really about looking at straight in the eye at at the odds that are stacked up against you sometimes and persevering pleasantly nonetheless. I appreciate you sharing that because I think that that's something that I wholeheartedly agree with. And is a great place to be able to wrap this up too. And <laughs> one thing I would encourage everybody to do, go get the book, check it out. Where where can they get the book? Where is it going to be for sale? And So it's already available for pre-sale on Amazon and really Barnes & Nobles, anywhere you, you buy your books. To find all of the latest places to pick it up, you can go to bossedup.org slash book. Very cool. So go get the book. And if people want to learn more about you, your story, 
aside from going back into the into the archives of the Happened to Your Career <laughs> podcast and searching for Emily Aries and searching for burnout, where else can they find you or connect with you? So wherever you're listening to this podcast, you should search for Bossed Up. That's B-O-S-S-E-D. And then a next word. So space U-P. That is my podcast. Comes out twice a week. And that's where you can keep up with me and all the latest and greatest with Bossed Up. Amazing. Hey, thank you so much for making the time and having this conversation and making it so much fun along the way. I appreciate it. Pleasure's all mine, Scott. It's so great to reconnect with you. Thank you for having me back. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Happen to Your Career podcast. I really, really appreciate it. And guess what? We've got plenty more coming up next week right here on Happen to Your Career. So take a listen to what we've got in store for you next week on the Happen to Your Career podcast. But in order to be proactive, we need to be really self-aware of who we are, what are our values, what are our strengths, what do we bring to the table, what are things that we like, what are things that we don't like. So all those kind of things that um, we think we may know are clarified and they're amplified once you start journaling. That's right. All that and plenty more next week. It's here on Happen to Your Career. I will see you next week when the episode releases on Monday. All right. I am out. Adios. Oh, hold on one second. My battery died. I thought because I had it plugged in that it wouldn't die. Or maybe leave it in. I don't know. (laughs) 